Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. You can go beyond giving to impact. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. I'm Erlon Woods. I'm Nigel Poor. We're the hosts and creators of Ear Hustle from PRX's Radiotopia. Ear Hustle is a show about life inside prison, but it's not your typical prison podcast. In this next season, we've got stories about the objects people keep inside their prison cells. About residents in a women's prison who say they want to stay there. And the most beautiful prison garden. Erlon, I will never forget it. Ear Hustle. Stories about life on the inside, told by those who live it. Find Ear Hustle wherever you get your podcasts. From WABE in Atlanta, this is Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott. Coming up on today's program, Georgia's population growth the last decade is clear, very diverse, and that's spurring a bipartisan group of state lawmakers to represent various communities of color. I'll speak with Democratic Senator Michelle Isle, founding member of the state's first Asian-American Pacific Islander caucus. Plus, Atlanta City Councilmember Jason Dozier has a proposal that might ban new gas stations and drive throughs near the Beltline. And there's a reason. He'll tell us why. Also, raise your hand. Is this you? I'm talking to you. you right there. Making New Year resolutions, setting goals, only to realize by February, eh, you know what? I'm done. I tried. Well, we'll talk about it and we'll see what happens. All those conversations coming up, but we'll begin with the weather. The morning commute was a bit nasty due to heavy rains in the area, which sometimes can lead to severe flooding. The National Weather Service has issued a flood watch in effect through 7 p.m. tonight. As expected, those severe thunderstorms could produce up to four inches of rainfall. Sam Marlowe is a meteorologist in Peachtree City. The Atlanta metro area, we can expect to see ponding on the roads um, as that water doesn't have as much, it can't move off as quickly or be absorbed by the soil. Forecasters say if you see a lot of ponding on the roadways, turn around. If that's not good enough for you, according to the CDC, listen, they report over half of all flood-related drownings occur when a vehicle is driven into hazardous flood water. So please be mindful of that. In other news, some members of Georgia's congressional delegation have been sworn in for the 118th Congress. That includes Democratic Senator Raphael Warnock. Vice President Kamala Harris administered the oath of office. Do you solemnly swear that you will support and defend the Constitution of the United States against all enemies, foreign and domestic, Warnock stood between two new senators, J.D. Vance of Ohio and Peter Welch of Vermont. So help you, God. I do. I do. Congratulations, senators. Congratulations. Now, House members will be sworn in after a speaker is elected, whenever that is. Republicans Mike Collins and Rich McCormick are the rookies in Georgia's House delegation. The Fulton County death sentence trial for the man who was accused of killing four Asian women in spas will begin tomorrow after it was delayed last year. Now, Robert Aaron Long faces 19 felony charges in Fulton County for the deaths of the women killed in March of 2021. The charges include felony murder, aggravated assault, the deadly weapon, and domestic terrorism. This will be the first time Georgia's new hate crime law will apply to a Fulton County case. For the first time beginning this year, Medicare beneficiaries will see insulin out-of-pocket prices capped at $35 a month. Jess Mador reports the change is part of last year's Inflation Reduction Act that was championed by Senator Raphael Warnock. 
Around 7 million Americans need insulin medication to manage their diabetes, and its cost has risen dramatically in the last two decades. Even with health insurance, many diabetics pay hundreds of dollars a month for the life-saving drug. Now, the insulin cap means millions of diabetic seniors on Medicare will pay no more than $35 a month. The Kaiser Family Foundation estimates it'll help nearly 2 million people across the country. During negotiations on the package, Republicans blocked a provision that would have extended the cap to diabetics with private insurance, too. Democratic Senator Raphael Warnock told Politico he's pushing to revive it. Jess Mador, WABE News. And finally, don't expect much activity on the first day of this year's legislative session, which gets underway next Monday. Like last year, the Georgia Bulldogs are playing for a national title. And given that a lot of UGA alum and fans are under the gold dome, many will be leaving on a jet plane to L.A. for the game. How do they get tickets? I'll ask Michelle Lyle. She's going. You're listening to Closer Look. We're back in a moment. Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. If you love Atlanta, you can invest in the big picture. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. And Closer Look continues from WABE in Atlanta. I'm Rose Scott. As mentioned, Georgia's legislative session gets underway next week and also a first within the General Assembly. An Asian American Pacific Islander caucus will also get underway. That's a bipartisan collective. And right now it's the largest AAPI state legislative caucus in the nation with the exception of Hawaii. State Senator Dr. Michelle Al, a Democrat of Johns Creek, is a founding member. And she joins me now. Happy New Year. Welcome to the program. Happy New Year, Rose, and thank you so much for having me again. I want to tell our listeners, you said during the break, you said, I am not the one to ask about football. (laughs) Look, I know my strengths and weaknesses. (laughs) Um, Let's begin here because um, you all are getting set for next week. Just I want to begin there. Um, Your feelings, is, is it always the same going into a new legislative session? I mean, obviously, you all have a mission. You, you have goals. But to, how do you prepare for that? So this is going to be my second term in the Georgia General Assembly. I am switching chambers, which is a, a little bit of an unusual quirk. I currently serve in the state Senate, and I'm going to be switching over to the state House. But I think that, generally speaking, the preparation is the same. You know you are going to be in for about three months of what I consider very hard but very gratifying work, mm-hmm. and you do all your mise en place and get ready for, for what's to come. What do you typically, what are lawmakers doing, state lawmakers doing, I guess, in the break? Are you meeting with constituents? Or are you trying to see, hey, maybe if this legislation didn't pass last time, what can I do differently to be a part of either getting it through or working with some of my colleagues? What is What are you doing in that downtime, besides taking a break for your personal 
Sure. I mean, I can't speak for everyone and what they're doing during the off session. And of course, this past year was an election year. So I assume that that colors a lot of what people are doing in that in between time. But for me personally, uh, I was running for the House seat, House Mm -hmm. District 50. Um, And I was also doing a significant amount of preparation Mm -hmm. with legislation, knowing that I had bills that were priority bills that I had been keeping notes on basically the entire year that I wanted to get drafted. I tried to work on those early because that does have to go through legislative council. And Mm -hmm. I know that once we get closer to session, more people are trying to get their bills drafted than there would be a bottleneck. So I actually started drafting those bills over the summer so that I would have them all ready to go by the time session started. Is there one that you really want to take the time to say, Rose, if if all of these, out of all these, this is the one or two that I'm really hoping we can get some traction on? I have several priority bills. I'm going to tell you about my top one. Okay. My top priority bill deals with the number one cause of death in children and teenagers in this country. And that causes gun violence. Mm-hmm. Okay, So my bill actually aims to treat gun violence like the public health epidemic that it is. Mm-hmm. And it proposes that we have stronger safe storage laws here in Georgia. Basically meaning that anyone who has a firearm that can be accessed by a minor, be it in your car, in your house, or anywhere, mm-hmm. that it be safely stored. Right, And I think that's just a common sense approach that we take with a lot of public health issues, including, you know, vehicular accidents, um, you know, medication bottles that are tamper proof, Mm -hmm. child proof. You know, it's it's very common sense stuff. And um, I don't think that we can afford to treat it like a political issue. And when we see from the CDC it is the number one cause Mm -hmm. of death in children and adolescents, we are um, required to act. And it, within the area, unfortunately and tragically, we've had some deaths where young, and I mean toddlers, uh, picked up or found a loaded gun. Uh, I think there have been, to my knowledge, within the last few months, at least two deaths, toddlers, young kids, uh, who died accidentally shooting themselves because they were they had access to, and obviously was un, unlocked, uh, or it wasn't put up, uh, a, a gun, a weapon. So this should be a bipartisan effort, you think? Do you anticipate any challenges? My goal is for it to be a bipartisan bill. And I have actually talked to a number of Republican state legislators who I've worked with in the past, particularly people who uh, have invested in pediatric and public health bills in the past, Mm. um, to be co-sponsors of this bill. Because I do think it's important to um, defang the issue from being a political issue and treat it like a public health issue. And you're right that we've seen a lot of these accidental shootings, and it's always tragic to see these news reports and these pictures of these young kids, um, because we we do know that um, especially handguns are treated somewhat more carelessly Mm -hmm. in terms of how they're not stored or or left around. But we also have to remember, especially after last year, when um, mental health was such a focus Mm -hmm. in the state legislature with the historic passage of HB 1013, the mental health parity bill, that actually the top cause of firearms death is suicide. Mm -hmm. So when we talk about it being the top cause of death in children and adolescents, we have to remember that children and teens being able to access guns and using it um, as a very lethal method of attempting suicide is a huge part of that problem. Mm-hmm. I want to shift for a moment because this, this is obviously why you're here too, not only talk about that, but you know, I was reading a piece, I believe it was, it was in Axios, and it referred to your caucus, this first Asian American Pacific Islander caucus, saying you all will get to work on tackling issues for a community that until recent years was long ignored by politicians. The truth in those words there? I think there is truth in those words. I think I've even said those exact words myself. Mm -hmm. 
And I think this sort of came to a head really in the last legislative session. In fact, I think the last time I was on your show and spoke with you was right on the heels of that tragic shooting on March 16th. It was the next day um, where uh, eight people were brutally murdered Mm -hmm. in an act of gun violence again, you know, back to these recurring themes of whom six were Asian women, Mm -hmm. right? And I think this sort of brought this issue to the fore of this, you know, group of people who had felt that a lot of the issues that we face and the concerns we have have been sort of minimized, dismissed, Mm -hmm. invisibilized, and a lot of our voices had been silenced Mm -hmm. up until now, right? And in the 2020 election, what we saw was that uh, Asian voters increased their numbers and their turnout by 84%, which was historic. Mm -hmm. We were the margin of victory in that election. And seeing that and people feeling that power made them realize that we actually do have a voice We do have the numbers and we do have the power to make a difference. And that's part of what this caucus is seeking to represent at the Capitol. I'm glad you said that because I think for some listeners who may not understand the purpose or or the need for a caucus and and how it's governed and how it operates, take them through it. So essentially what we're seeing now in the legislature, and I'm going to just explain why we are deciding to form this caucus in this moment, Mm -hmm. is we have at this point the largest number of elected Asian American Pacific Islander state legislators in the history of Georgia. We have 11 legislators yeah. elected. What's that say to you? That's, that's a huge number, right? Mm-hmm. And it's more than doubled since the last session. Last session, we thought we were the, it was the historic number. We had five state legislators, yeah. um, and that was already historic at that time. But in seeing how many Asian Americans ran for office this time and won, mm-hmm. and how many more Asian American voters were engaged in this election, mm-hmm. right? And feeling that this was important for them to participate in and feeling maybe like their issues uh, were being listened to is a huge indicator of how Georgia is changing and a huge indicator of how certain types of work we've been doing is continuing to bear fruit, right? So I want to reemphasize that this is a bipartisan caucus, right? Mm-hmm. Not all Asians are the same. Not all Asians vote the same. That's the true, that's true of any any group, right? Yes, I have heard that before. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sure you have. You know, people like to paint with a broad brush. Absolutely. Because it uh, it simplifies communication, especially in politics. We know that politics does not reward nuance whatsoever. So I think it's easy for people to communicate that way. But part of forming this large and historically diverse Asian American caucus is to show people that there are many different ways to be Asian American. And all you have to do is just to look at the members of the caucus and see that. And representation matters. It may sound like a simplistic cliche and people don't like to hear it, but it, listen, in this nation, we know it, representation matters. Fair representation and equity matters, so. Exactly, and you can't fix problems that you can't see. And sometimes you can't see the problems unless you are in those rooms, in those communities, experiencing them yourself, right? So not again, not to oversimplify that you have to experience um, certain issues in order mm-hmm. to be able to address them. But it certainly does help to have it be a part of your lived experience to be able to see things more clearly and to amplify the voices that are often ignored. Amplify. I've heard that word before. <laughs> well, we are in front of microphones, so that does remind us. Um, for listeners who may say, okay, well, you know, uh, t- take us through then some of those issues that you feel, that you all feel are very important and may be specific to the Asian American Pacific Islander community. And if they don't know, now we should tell them. I'm going to bring up two issues that I think are important and I think that are bipartisan, right? Mm -hmm. Because, again, I want to emphasize that this is a bipartisan caucus. The first thing is the importance of engaging Asian American voters and to increase voter turnout. Because Mm -hmm. I think 
Having been an Asian American candidate, living in a community with a lot of Asian Americans, and talking to voters, many voters feel that they have not been reached out to, right? And when we say that Asian Americans historically have not turned out in the numbers that we're starting to see, mm-hmm. it's because no one's ever asked for their vote, right? And I've, uh, I was told as a, as a first-time candidate to not, quote, waste too much of my time talking to Asian voters because they don't turn out. You were told that? I was told that. Um, and it was not, you know, in the days of yore. This was in 2019, right? And they were telling, they were telling me that um, what, what I want to make sure happens, and I think what many people in our caucus want to make sure happens, is that no one in Georgia and no one in this country is ever given that kind of advice again. Of course, when we talk about reaching out to um, immigrant communities, multilingual communities, and doing a lot of voter education and, uh, you know, constricting people to go out and vote, it does take more work, right? Mm -hmm. Because we have to understand that multilingual outreach is part of it, culturally competent outreach is part of it, and a lot of voter education is going to have to be part of it, but that this has to be an automatic part of every campaign is thinking, what is your AAPI outreach plan? That is uh, that that in itself with the voter registration and outreach and community engagement is a huge priority. That's that that could take. I mean, that's going to take up a lot of your time as well. But you, you said you had another one, another issue as well. Another issue that I've heard consistently from Asian American voters, and this is really voters who are Republican or Democrat. And I I know this because a lot of Republicans end up do end up talking to me because I do live in a very sort of swingy 50-50 district. Mm-hmm. One big issue is public safety. Mm-hmm. Again, back to that issue. I think that the shootings on March 16th certainly brought it to the fore in a very vivid way that we could see and feel within our communities very intimately. Mm-hmm. However, literally every single day, all you have to do is turn on the news or read the newspaper or listen to the radio and you hear about another victim of uh, gun violence, another you know mass shooting, which tends to get the most attention but actually is far less common than other types of gun violence. So I've heard across the board from all types of Asian voters across Asian communities that they're very concerned about gun safety as an issue. They're worried about their kids. They're worried about their communities. They're worried about themselves, about Asian elders, mm-hmm. and how this interfaces with the issue of AAPI hate and anti-AAPI mm-hmm. violence. You all have uh, along. There's, a, I believe, a Hispanic caucus as well. You all gonna come together too and see if there's some s- similar uh, issues or initiatives you all want to work on as well. Absolutely, and I appreciate you bringing that up. One of the first things we did when we started um, gathering people together to form this caucus is to make sure that we reached out to the other. Um, minority caucuses that were in existence, the new Hispanic caucus. I've talked to the chair, Senator Jason Anavitarte, and I've talked to other members of that caucus to make sure that we work together moving forward. I've reached out to the chair of the Legislative Black Caucus to make sure that we are working together, Mm -hmm. because here's the thing that we see uh, in this country, and certainly in politics, is that when we, as uh, minority caucuses, let ourselves be fractured apart from each other, when we let it become issues of segmentation rather than us working together mm-hmm. on larger issues that are uh, germane to all of our communities and that we all care about, it minimizes our power, right? So in making that a priority immediately for us to work together, it strengthens all of our work and it furthers all of our goals. And I think those are that's part of a, two questions I want to end our conversation on is working together because we can look and see what's happening up in Washington um, and this divided Congress, that word just kills me. Um, how have we gotten this far where we're still, where politics and and the two major parties, it still comes down to 
for some. They just don't want to work with the other simply because it's the other party. And it's really not about, hey, we can't agree on an issue. It's just we just don't want to work with you because you're the other party and, and perhaps you all have the power or whatever. 2023, this nation's still dealing with that. Some say, oh, Rose, it's part of politics. Don't be naive. But there are things that need to get done, whether it's a Congress or here in Georgia, there are things that need to get done. How do you work through all that? Does it get frustrating? I don't think it's a novel observation for me to say that we're at one of the most polarized times in the history of this country when it comes to politics and partisanship. However, what I would invite people to look at and to notice and to come down to the Capitol and see is how much we actually get through and vote on together that gets passed in our state legislature, either unanimously or very nearly unanimously, mm -hmm. right? And these tend to be the more workmanlike pieces of legislation, things that are about specific issues, specific problems being fixed, and getting things done. They don't get as much attention, because mm -hmm. I do think that sometimes the nature of media and the nature of politics feeds uh, conflict, right? Or feeds on conflict, let's Bad say. media. Right? <laughs> These media folks are just out of control. But that it is actually a relatively small subset of things mm -hmm. in which the parties vociferously disagree, particularly in a state legislature that is really geared towards making things work for people in the state. Still dealing with COVID. Obviously, there are, and you're a doctor, so and you and I had conversations just about health care, navigating through all of that. Are there some other health-related issues that you want to make sure that you are either going to be championing or, or put your name under? I mean, every year we ask the same question about, you know, Medicaid expansion. I mean, that's a whole nother segment, a whole nother show. But might this be the year that we see some movement, you think? I think there is probably an openness to at least re-examine the fiscal and budgetary wisdom of looking at all the solutions on the table when it comes to increasing access to health care. Mm -hmm. And I say that in a very specific way because I do think that certain terms have, unfortunately, like many terms, become polarized and part of the political you know, mm -hmm. dogma rather than being taken as what they are on their face. Mm -hmm. But I do hope that um, in the state legislature this year that we can continue to work piecemeal on some larger problems that I do, again, think we all agree on. Mm -hmm. I have two bills that actually directly address something that you had mentioned earlier in your new segment uh, that Dr. Uh, <laughs> Dr. That Senator Warnock has had great success with up in Washington. Insulin. Mm -hmm. With insulin affordability. And I have a bill that actually is an insulin safety net program that provides both short and long-term availability of uh, for insulin for patients who can't afford it, either for a 30-day term or a 90-day term, because uh, we've seen often that people are cutting their doses, skipping doses mm -hmm. of a medication that they literally need to survive. And we can't forget that this is a medication that is more than a century old, right? Mm -hmm. So this is an issue that everyone has to deal with. It is not a partisan issue. And I do think we can make concrete progress on this. I have a listener who wants to know why did you switch house uh, chambers? Great question. We just had a redistricting year. Redistricting, uh, mathematically speaking, is the process of looking at the sure. census mm -hmm. and redrawing every district so it has roughly the same number of people. That is the mathematical justification for mm -hmm. what we do. However, as we see across the country, that is often used as an excuse for the minority party, uh, sorry, the majority for party, <laughs> which was the minority party, to draw the maps in a way that uh, solidifies mm -hmm. uh, their advantage in certain strategic ways. So there was one state Senate seat out of 56 this past redistricting that was targeted to be flipped back to Republican. That happened to be the seat that I currently represent. Mm -hmm. um, 
And rather than being drawn out of my district because I got a lot more work to do, mm-hmm. I decided to run for an open house seat because I can do this work from anywhere. And it's not about ego. It's not about title. It's about the work and you have to go where the work is. So in, until you're sworn in, you're technically still kind of... Are you representative-elect, senator? <laughs> Not just technically. I am I am still the state just, senator for yeah. the 48th district. Yeah. And then I guess on January 9th, after I take my oath, I will be representative of House District 50. But it is it is confusing. And believe me, it is causing a lot of problems for people. Not sure which email list to put me on. <laughs> Not sure which piece of paper I should sign up for. It's, it's very confusing for everyone. I don't blame well, you. For now, Senator Michelle, Dr. Michelle Al, who soon will be representative... Michelle out in a few few days. Uh, thank you so much for taking time. I really appreciate it. Thank you for the conversation. Good luck to you all. Thank you, Rose. Pleasure I, to be with you. I still want you to watch the game Monday. You Rose. don't have to. You don't have to. You don't have to. You're making me watch football. All I right. Know. All I, right. I, I should be better than that. I, I apologize. I'll play along. I'll, I'll watch. <laughs> you don't have to watch. I'm game. I'm game. <laughs> And you're listening to Closer Look from WABE in Atlanta. I'm Rose Scott. It's a new year. Time to join the gym again. Time to pledge to save more money again. Time to give up sugar again. Run your first half marathon again. Give up barbecue, said no one ever. Now, some of y'all are establishing new goals, and that's cool. And we know that with setting new goals comes pressure, which can sometimes often fuel anxiety fear, and other emotions. Now, get this. According to data pulled from Forbes Health One Poll Survey, mental health is a top priority this year for a lot of folks. And this poll gathered data from just over 1,000 people. And it found that 45% of those that responded listed improving their mental health at the top of their New Year's resolution list. Nobody mentioned giving up barbecue, which is a good thing. But How does one or should one manage the expectations of those goals? Well, Jennifer Lester is a psychotherapist, life coach, motivational speaker and author. She joins me now to talk about it all. But as always, please consult with your own primary care mental health expert. Jennifer, welcome back to the program. Are you I think Jennifer is on mute. So Jennifer's going to unmute for me. Happy New Year. Thank you for having me. Happy New Year. Um, really, no one ever says I'm giving up barbecue as a New Year's resolution. So let's just get yeah, that out the way. You have never, ever heard anybody say that, right? Never. <laughs> let's begin here. Uh, listen, it, it's always fun. It's nice to make those lists and have goals and set goals and do vision boards and all of that. What is your number one, I guess, suggestion to people about first managing that list? really coming up with something that's idea that you could possibly see through because if you have a list you know, of 25 things and you're like, it's a little overwhelming. You know, they, they do get overwhelming. And oftentimes with those large lists like that, we tend to give up. I always say, you know, how do you eat an elephant? You do a bite by bite. You don't swallow them whole. And so while all of your goals may be important uh, it is very important to break them down in smaller pieces so that you can, if you're going to eat an elephant, I can 
do the tail. Maybe I do the trunk. Maybe I start on that leg, which yeah. is big, you know. And so breaking them down step by step is a very important uh, place in accomplishing all of those goals that you're setting for yourself for this year and ongoing throughout the year. Is it, would you all, do you suggest that maybe if there's just one or two, like for example, you know, I mentioned, you know, giving up sugar or some people say, you know what, I'm really going to cut down on the sweets. I mean, that's something that's manageable because you can work up to it as opposed to say, I'm going to cut out all sweets because that is really hard for someone like me, but maybe cut down and then, you know, baby steps. Do you recommend that as well? Baby steps, moderation. You do uh, small things because, um, Small progress is still progress. Mm -hmm. Oftentimes we count it out because we want to see the big progress. Let's say if we're starting on a weight loss goal, we want to get on a scale that every week is five pounds down, mm -hmm. but a half a pound is just as important. And so we forget sometimes just to um, celebrate those small victories along the way because it encourages and keeps us going. So I do say, if I'm going to say, I'm not going to have any sugar, well, it sets you up for failure because it's not actually a progress of progressing it. And so I would start off cutting out sugar or I'm going to start uh, making sure I make my bed every day. Mm -hmm. You know, so small goals and small things like that, those things, um, the more successes you have, the more you draw to you. It's a law of attraction. I am mm -hmm. successful in this. I feel good. So it leads you that way to start doing more things that are successful in your life. When someone uh, makes a, a goal or, or has a, a resolution of, I want to improve my mental health, and yeah. and does that always mean you just you automatically go out and, and sign up with some type of therapist or counselor, or what do you suggest? And again, we want folks to you know seek their own, but what are some mistakes that people make when they begin to, and it's great that they want to address that, let's be very clear, but what are some of the mistakes that people make in trying to address their mental health? You know, Rose, I'm very excited about this new mental health movement and the importance of it. And I think it just starting doesn't mean you have to run out and get every self-help book or go out and get a therapist. It really just means taking some time for yourself, some deep breathing, a little meditation for yourself, positive self-talk. Mm -hmm. Those are all ways to improve your mental health. And they're very easily and they cost nothing. Mm -hmm. You know, just for me, part of my mental health is being able to keep appointments so i i ordered my my planner i ordered it early <laughs> i got a great little planner i mean i have my phone where i keep a lot of appointments but just being able to write things down i have a good buddy my good buddy ray he says we're going to write things down and what i have discovered that so far on day four when i'm writing more of these things down it's keeping me on track so baby steps for me that's part of my mental health is being able to somehow manage a, a schedule that works for Rose. Just want to throw that out there, folks. And then my planner cost me $12. Just letting y'all know. Let me tell you. So I'm a planner girl. I am a planner girl. <laughs> I love a planner. But here's a tip that I give clients is if you take a sticky note and you write about three to five goals on your sticky note and place them on a place that you see the most, let's say your computer, your laptop, and I don't let my eyes close unless I complete those goals. It may be something as simple as running to the post office or emailing people back call. At the end of the week, if you've done five of them every day, that's 25 goals that you accomplished. And so there's an easy way, just with a sticky note. Let's let's talk about then the mindset, because I had okay. to go through, OK, Rose, if you're going to do this, but changing your mindset before you start addressing all of these these other goals, which might require you walking four or five miles a day. How do you suggest people get into changing the mindset? It's not sometimes that might take a month or two before you even get to the res to even taking care of the resolution, correct? 
It is. So I'm a cognitive behavior therapist. So I believe that your thoughts affect your behavior. You change your thoughts, you change your behavior, and ultimately you change your life. And so it starts with a thought. And so when you are setting uh, goals for a person who's committed, you committed thought, you committed emotional behavior, all of that leads towards attaining your goal. And so if you're saying that, uh, oh my God, I don't think I'm going to do it. You told every cell in your body that it's not going to happen. And every thought and everything in your ha- in your brain that you're thinking leads you to that not happening. Mm. So it is a positive thought saying that I believe that this goal is going to happen. And it's a thought that happens before any action, any words can ever happen happen in your life. And I think that is critical piece of obtaining goals and having a positive mindset, a positive life. Should you have, and I have friends who do vision boards. I have friends who put up meditations and, and little things around the house and in their car, just to remind them, um, those little, those little activities, they, they help. I don't have, you know, a vision board. I've never done a vision board every year. Again, see, I say, I'm going to do a vision board. And Rose Scott has never done a vision board in her life. But I say it every year. Let me tell you this. So a good way to do a vision board, if you take some photos from online and just put, make you, make you a, uh, a grid and use it on your phone as a screensaver. You use your phone more than you do anything else. Ah. And so as you're looking at your phone, you see those things that, Hey, if it's a new car, a new home, whether it's a new job, some motivational tips, I put it in my phone as a screensaver. And uh, when I click on it, I see it there every time. That is great advice. Uh-huh. So, so my new, so my, the Fisker that I want, which is a, an electric vehicle, I should put the the Fisker a picture of the Fisker on my phone because uh-huh. I put that along with a lot of other things. <laughs> You'll be really surprised at how much that helps. I've I've done vision boards and vision board parties throughout the year. And I realized one day I was sitting looking at a vision board that I had done a while ago and realized that I drive that car now that I put on my vision board yeah. or I did. So it's somewhere that I'm looking at. But I also used to take a picture of my vision board and screen save that. So those who are doing vision board, it is not outdated. It's still allowing you to visualize those things that you want to bring forth. I have a, a, a comment and a question from a listener who says, Rose, can you talk about letting go? Often we, we make resolutions about things we want to do but also a resolution or a goal of letting something go. How how do you deal with that? That that is a good uh, piece of letting those things go that no longer serve us. Um, We kind of spend a lot of energy and time watering dead plants that will never grow or harvest any seeds for us. And so uh, letting those go, making room for new things. You know, when they say, oh, you're cutting your ends so your hair will grow. Well, cutting ends off doesn't also doesn't necessarily mean just your hair. Mm-hmm. Or you cut plants back in the fall so they can grow, bloom. So cutting things off and letting things go allows you to be able to bloom a bigger bloom uh, to create a larger harvest. Are we also talking about what a smart goal is in all of this, Jennifer? Because if we're talking about making goals that are achievable, and I've heard, you know, people have these tiered goals like, this is the the smart goal and this is like the the minor goal or, or do you do you understand where i'm going with that like uh, is, is you that- know so, so i was going to say rose i'm sorry but smart goals are very uh a much uh part of a goal setting so if you're working with any coach or anybody or just yourself those smart goals that are uh that are specific they're measurable they're attainable relatable and or relevant realistic and time, you have, there's a time, a time step on a time bound. Mm-hmm. So using those steps and smart goals will help you to stay on track to accomplish those goals. Should you, you also are. have an accountability buddy? 
that you all are accountable for each other. I have a friend, we walk sometimes, and she says, we're going to hold each other accountable, and we ain't walked yet. <laughs> I mean, I did a little walking. You know, it's, it's January 4th. Work with me. But should we have an accountability buddy? You know, those accountability partners are really good. You know, sometimes me and my account- accountability partner, I just both fall off track at the same time. <laughs> but you know, <laughs> but um, when you are working with those goals, here here's some things to think about. You should have something that motivates you. Motivation gets you started. Inspiration keeps you going. Well, I got to so tell motivation you. motivation comes from the outside. Inspiration comes from the inside. I got to tell you, because okay. I'm going to see Janet Jackson in April. And, yes. and I want to have my Rhythm Nation look. So my goal is to get my body together for the rhythm okay. for my Janet so that's Jackson. That's your motivation. That's, your that's motivation. my motivation. Every time you fall off track, you need to be playing five, four. You need to be popping <laughs> Janet off. You need to be sitting in the mirror looking. All of those things to help uh, ground you and to remind you what you're, you're, you're doing it for. And finally, Jennifer, how can listeners avoid then a burnout toward all of that? If you feel like, okay, you know what? Maybe I have too many goals. Maybe I have too many resolutions, too many SMART goals. What do you suggest they do? Sometimes just focusing on one. Uh, also, just taking a moment to applaud yourself for all of those things that you accomplished along the way. Counting up the wins. Uh, sometimes when you count up the wins, you're, you'll be surprised at how much you have accomplished and not being so hard on yourself. Be kind to yourself this year. Um, we sp- speak to ourselves more than we speak to anybody else and saying positive and kind things to ourselves. And it's okay to have a tough day. Mm-hmm. Wow. Jennifer Lester, psychotherapist, life coach, motivational speaker, and author. And we've been talking about managing expectations when it relates to those goals and resolutions and mental health. Thank you so much for taking time. I really appreciate it. I'm going to check back in with you. Maybe, maybe a few months from now, you can see how I'm going with my, you know, Rhythm Nation look. Yes, absolutely. (laughs) Thank you guys always for having me. Thank you. And Happy New Year. And you're listening to Closer Look from WABE in Atlanta. I'm Rose Scott. Here in Georgia, the Governor's Highway Safety Association ranks the state as among the most dangerous for for pedestrians. In Atlanta alone, the number of pedestrians killed by drivers doubled, actually, from 2020 to 2021. And that includes several deaths near one of the city's thought-to-be safest corridors for walking and rolling and all that. Well, that's the Beltline. And now three newly introduced ordinances hope to change all this by limiting what they call car-centric infrastructure by the Beltline. Well, join me now is Atlanta City Councilmember Jason Dozier, whose districts include West End, Mechanicsville, and the West Side Beltline, because you're behind a, a lot of this, uh, legislation to address this. Uh, welcome. Good. Happy New Year. Happy New Year, Rose. Good to see you. Look, I want to clarify for some folks who may be saying, oh, when we talk about the Beltline overlay, and they may not be familiar with that. Is this just going to deal with these areas around this Beltline overlay, explain that. Yeah, so the Beltline overlay is defined as essentially half a mile on either side of the Beltline trail, plus or minus specific parcels or streets so that, uh, you know, it's not cutting in halfway into somebody's yard, but it makes sense, but it's about half a mile either direction. And it would limit or ban 
vehicles and not just vehicles. We're talking about like new gas stations as well, right? Drive-throughs. Yeah. So essentially, uh, uh, vehicle-oriented development. So uh, drive-throughs, drive-ins. Uh, you know, everything from fast food restaurants to banks. You can still have fast food restaurants and banks. You just can't have a drive-through associated with it. Uh, it bans new. Uh, uh, I said gas stations, but it also uh, does something which I think is something that is a long time coming. Uh, city requires developers to build or set aside a certain amount of parking spaces for commercial and residential, and it reduces that or gets rid of that requirement as and well. And I want to be clear, this is new development. What about if you're already there? Can and they're, Are they grandfathered in in terms if they need to make some type of modifications? Correct. It's, it's new development. Mm-hmm. Um, however, uh, you know, we, the hope is that when developers who acquire those older properties see, hey, you know, the, the law has changed, you know, the rules are different, and that should create a different framework for them to think differently about how those projects are, are managed. This ordinance, and it does, in this proposed legislation, it does cite some statistics that reveal, and, and this is not new to me, and neither to you, I'm sure that there's a disproportionate amount of black pedestrians killed by drivers as compared to white. And I want you to explain that to our listeners who may not understand that. Yeah, absolutely. So so nationally, if you're a black pedestrian, you're two times more likely to die in a uh, crash with a car than if you're a white pedestrian. Locally, mm-hmm. in the state of Atlanta in the last two years, 75% of pedestrian fatalities were black mm-hmm. people. So I see this as a equity issue as a racial justice issue, especially when you consider the next frontier of Beltline development is in black communities, is in low-income communities, communities where there are more people who require uh, public transportation to get around, who require to are required to walk to the store or mm-hmm. walk their kids to school. And that's where the development's coming. So we got to be prepared for it and do it in a way that's going to protect people and save lives. And keep in mind, I've been saying this since I've been doing this program, that there are still so many neighborhoods in Atlanta where they don't have sidewalks, where there should be sidewalks. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And folks need to understand that as an equity issue. It is absolutely an equity issue. And I'll tell you, uh, and I, I will say uh, definitely to this mayor's credit and to his leadership, the city is trying to address those sorts of trans- those direct infrastructure transportation issues. We're trying to address the sidewalk backlog. We're trying to make sure that we turn more streets into complete streets. Mm-hmm. Our office specifically is investing about a million dollars in traffic calming in District 4 specifically to slow down cars. I just think there's more that we can do from a zoning and land use perspective to ensure that we meet these same goals. That it's not just transportation, land use also plays a role in protecting people. But even lives. if this gets through, gets passed, you mentioned backlog, because I just had this conversation with your colleague, uh, Councilmember Matt Westmoreland, you know, about with the electric bike you know, the, the e-bike, the rebate, because the infrastructure wise, you, there's still a backlog mm-hmm. and you've got to fix that as well. Mm-hmm. well right, right. What's the hold up here? Yeah. Well, I think part of it is, you know, OK, yeah, we got the funding. We need the project managers. We need the uh, contractors. We need all those sorts of other uh, pieces in place to actually execute and get shovels in the ground and mm-hmm. get, you know, these projects built. Uh, but I think that at the very least, the funding is there. It's just now it's a matter of execution. And I hope with our new transportation commission that's coming in, uh, we'll be able to get that, that happening much sooner than what we might have uh, thought we were going to be a year ago when we were going through this transition. With this legislation that would prevent, you know, the the, the drive-throughs and, and, and some of this, but do you need the buy-in of, like, Atlanta Beltline, Inc., the, 
Path Foundation? Are there other entities here? MARTA, are there other entities here that you all need to make sure you sort of not necessarily have their blessing, but, you know, because it affects for some of them, it affects them as well. What happens around the Beltline? Because they're near the Beltline. Absolutely. Well, I mean, I did talk with the Beltline before I introduced the legislation. And at the end of the day, this belt, this, this legislation is aligned with their vision of a, a, a walkable, multimodal community, not just trail, but community. Mm-hmm. And so that if you are, uh, it, it ties into the equity argument as well. Like I said, many of our residents don't have a car. So let's de- make sure the development is centered around people and not just with the, the vehicle that they may or may not have. For if there's a business, let's say down the road, let's say this legislation goes into effect and down the road, a gas station or some type of drive through within this Beltline overlay, it closes down or moves or whatever. Is this would apply to anything that's going to reopen there or if someone wants or entity wants to move there? Does there need to be some type of, of specific detailed in this legislation, detailed provision about if it's going to be repurposed, what it needs to meet in right. terms of the criteria? Well, this this is one of those times where I preface to say, you know, I'm not a lawyer, but we did deal with the situation similar to this uh, tied to the, the legislation around the distance between mm-hmm. gas stations. We have a, a building in my district that used to be a gas station mm-hmm. and the owners want to make it a gas station again. Well, since they were a gas station the first time, uh, we passed legislation that said, hey, you have to have at least 1,500 feet. So mm-hmm. they're prohibited going forward from making it a gas station, even though it used to be. So as long as there's not a continuing use, then uh, that they would have to conform with the new standards that are set. And you said a half a mile, correct? Correct. From the trail itself. From the trail. From the trail. It's, it's, there's a specific, you know, if you look at a GIS map, mm-hmm. you know, there's specific parcels that you can tell. You look at any other map, what are impacting, what are not. But just from as a rule of thumb, half a mile on either side of the trail itself. Is there anything, and I know you, you, you mentioned the attorneys have to look through this legislation as well, but is there anything that you think might need some tweaking or modification? Have you heard some, I know you just, you just introduced it, but have you heard any concerns from anybody? Uh, I've heard concerns from more from a, um, uh, uh, just, you know, what does it, what does it do? I think it's an education component of, of that we're trying to address. I don't think it's a, anything that's a technical limitation with the legislation. I think it's just a policy. You know, this is a new type of policy that we're trying to in- introduce mm-hmm. in these communities. And, uh, you know, I think folks, particularly around parking and, and hey, if we're not requiring developers to build parking, is someone going to park in front of my house? Is that going to be a, a challenge? Or is that going to be an issue? I don't think it will. And I tell people, I remind people all the time, you know, downtown and midtown and near modern stations, we don't require parking there. Mm-hmm. Yet developers in many cases are still deciding to build a 14-story parking podium with, you know, 12, 1,200 parking spaces. So um, I'm thinking about the development that's taking place right there off of, of Edgewood. I believe there a hotel that's being built somewhere or something right off of Edgewood. I'm not sure about Edgewood specifically. It's but right across from Slutty Vegan, I think. They're, they're building something there. Mm-hmm. What is it? Is it? I, I'm like, where are folks going? I think it's a hotel. <laughs> I could be wrong. Someone will let me know. But whatever they're building there, my question is, where is the parking? Mm. <laughs> People want to park. People love the park. Yeah. People also want to walk. Where is Atlanta and its identity in trying to be this walkable city is it 50 percent i gotta tell you council member i think a lot of folks will say i don't even know if we're 50 yeah if we want to be this great walkable city 
we got a long way to go. Yeah, no, and I get it. And that was uh, some part of the, the, I call it controversy when I introduced parking maximums, limiting the amount of parking that developers can build for downtown and midtown. We got it passed. And we reminded folks that, yeah, we're building all this parking, but it's so underutilized. Even before the pandemic, 30% of those spaces. And on a Wednesday afternoon during uh, when people were commuting in this, into the city, weren't using those spaces. And so mm-hmm. there's opportunity to have shared parking arrangements. There's opportunities to, to think differently about how we manage those spaces with regards to the question of, hey, where are people going to park? Like I say, I think developers are, you know, they know their markets. They know the types of tenants they're trying to attract. I, I don't see a situation. I would want to make sure we can encourage them mm-hmm. to not build as much parking. But all we're, all we're saying with this is that the city's not requiring you to build X amount of parking spaces because what happens is we end up over parking and we create more situations in which cars are trying to drive into parking decks and parking garages. Mm-hmm. That's more situations in which cars are interacting with pedestrians who are trying to walk on the sidewalk and that's more situations where people are getting hurt or people are getting killed and that, we're just trying to take, remove the city from that equation because we want to make sure the city is playing a stronger role in building spaces a building environment that is centered around pedestrians centered around people and centered around safety after public safety and i think housing affordability issues which i obviously are at the top here for georgia as we wrap up transit and and anything mobility related to that that seems to be so key for whatever the future of Atlanta's identity is going to be in terms of what, who we are as a city. I've heard folks say that. You, you agree that transit and mobility is a big part of that? I think, I think it is a big part of it. I mean, we're the largest city in the region, and a lot of people, even if you don't live in the city proper, you come into the city to work, you come into the city to, to, go, to take in the arts, to go to a concert, and how you get around is in, critically important to our economic well, health. Well, Beltline attracts a lot of and people. And Beltline attracts a lot of people. And so, yes, it's about protecting our residents and making sure our residents can, can get around safely, but we are, we are setting a standard for the region, and I want to make sure that our decision our policies are, are going to allow us to be the standard bearer, the flag bearer, and to, to really inspire other communities, whether it's Roswell or Alpharetta, mm-hmm. whether it's, it's, it's Union City, to think differently about how they're managing their limited amount of land that they have. So well, that we people can... are looking at the Beltline. I just watched the 12-minute piece. I think it was from CNBC about Atlanta's Beltline. And I thought, wow, you know, this is going to be a template for so many other cities in, in the nation. Now, before I let you go, you know I'm going to have to ask you about the mall <laughs> over there. Mm-hmm. Um, what are you hearing? The, <laughs> it was funny is I, I think I sent a I sent a text message to the team I sent a text message to Eloisa Invest Atlanta uh, asking for an update and the the latest that I get every single time is, is still under contract there's still negotiations happening and I'm I'm as hungry for information as everyone else and I want to make sure that at the end of the day we're going to end up with a project or mm-hmm. with a product that's going to positively reflect on the West End community in Southwest Atlanta, and I'm intent on making sure that happens. But I'm still waiting on hearing what comes out of these so-called negotiations and making sh- and seeing what's next. But, you know, that's kind of where we're at right now. How y'all on the council? Y'all done had some um, issues <laughs> last 72 hours? Yeah, I think we're in a good place. I mean, I think that um, – we had to have a, a lot of heart-to-hearts and a lot of soul search and a lot of internal conversations and public-facing conversations. But I think we're in a good place, and I think we're ready to do the people's business. And I look forward to getting back to work. All right. And your little one? My little one is, <laughs> you know, she's two. And that's I think every parent out, out there knows exactly what that means. So a lot of work, but I'm, I'm thankful for it. District 4 Atlanta City Council Member Jason Dozier, thank you so much for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Thank you. All right.
And that's it for this edition of Closer Look. Our producers are LaShawn Hudson, Daniel Rizal, Pat St. Clair. Our engineer is Kevin Rinker. A reminder, let us know your thoughts on today's program or any other. Send me an email, rose at wabe.org. And if you missed any of today's program, it's online, wabe.org slash Closer Look. And, of course, Closer Look weeknights at 7 p.m. And we have a podcast, if you didn't know, so subscribe to wherever you like. Now, stay tuned to 90.1 WABE from Atlanta. I'm Rose Scott. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. The Gold Dome Scramble podcast is now plugged in, a WABE politics podcast. New name, same on-the-ground reporting from us, WABE politics reporters Sam Greenglass and Raul Bally. We'll cover local, state, and national politics as we talk to politicians and voters to break down each week's biggest headlines. New episodes drop on Fridays. Listen and subscribe at WABE.org or your favorite podcast platform. WABE.